What do you do when you have to make a major decision in life? What do you do when you have to make a major decision? Now, I asked a group of people this question on Thursday night, and their responses were fascinating. The first word they said was panic. <laughs> then they said pray. Oh, I thought they said cry, but they, they reassured me it was pray. Then pass out, plot, pause, and patiently wait. Now, the fact that all these points begin with the letter P may make you think that I was talking to a group of Baptist preachers. But in fact, it was just a bunch of ordinary Christians from our church who meet as a life group in West Didsbury. Life is full of decisions, isn't it? From what to eat for breakfast to what to study. From which mobile phone to get to whether you should marry or who. From how to spend your evening to how to spend your money. From what to do this afternoon to what to do with the rest of your life. Decisions, decisions, decisions. Now they can be so crucial, can't they? And the bigger the decision, sometimes the more paralyzing it feels. We find ourselves overwhelmed with options we don't know how to choose, or we're frustrated by an apparent lack of direction. Decisions lead some people into intense research mode. They analyze every possible outcome. Some of you are long-term, every eventuality planners. But that can lead to great anxiety, because you can't control the outcomes. And it can lead to paralysis by analysis. You've got so much data, you don't know what to do with it. You just freeze. Now, others of my wife, by the way, is like that first group. I'm like the second group here. We're like the ostrich. Now, apparently, contrary to popular belief, ostriches do not bury their heads in the sand when they're uh, frightened or scared. But when an ostrich senses danger and can't run away, it flops to the ground and remains still, with its head and neck flat on the ground in front of it. I was tempted to do it, I won't do it. But you can, <laughs> you can just picture it, can't you? There's, a, there's danger, there's a problem. Quick, do nothing. Now, over the summer, we've been studying the book of Proverbs, which is in the middle of the Bible. We're on a quest to the search for wisdom. Proverbs uh, is all about wisdom, and wisdom has been defined as the skill of living well. The skill of living well. We need this skill if we're going to enjoy life in God's world. We all want to live well. We all want the good life. And therefore, we need wisdom. And as you go through life, Proverbs teaches us, you find that it's almost never black and white. It's many, many, many shades of gray. Life is made up of countless situations, conundrums, difficulties, questions and decisions that are not clear cut and there is no rule book. So we need wisdom. And Proverbs, we've discovered, is the Bible's goldmine of wisdom. This is the place to go if you want to become a profound person. You could mine it for the rest of your life and never exhaust its riches. We've looked at Proverbs wisdom for friendship. So important. We've looked at wisdom for words, how we speak, when we speak, li uh, listening, how we receive speech. We've looked at wisdom for our emotions, for our work. And last week, we looked at wisdom 
about our pride. A number of people dodged a bullet by trying to get away from that sermon. They went into the children's group, but it's online. You've got to listen to it. Now, some of us have found this wisdom transformative, some of you have told me. But today we're going to end our journey with the wise sages of Proverbs, at least for now. And we're going to ask this question, where will we get guidance for the rest of our lives? Where will we get guidance for those decisions we constantly have to make? And the first answer you might get, and if you want to look now at your sheet, if you want to do some origami, you can fold it in half. Uh, Look under the introduction there. The first answer might surprise you. It's that if we want guidance, we need to make plans. Chapter 21, verse 5 of Proverbs says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. Now, the Proverbs work like this a lot of the time. Notice there's a contrast between the first line and the second line. In the first line, it says that the plans of the diligent lead to profit. And that word profit can also be translated plenty, abundance, prosperity. The diligent person, it says, the person who applies themselves and makes plans, will have more than enough to live on. They will be in surplus. They're in profit. They can afford to be generous. But the contrast on the second line is really sobering. This is a person who ends up in poverty. Scarcity, they don't have enough. They can't be generous. They're scraping by. Now, what is the difference in this proverb? The first person plans and the second person doesn't. The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to profit. Now, this second person is hasty, which means they're impulsive. They act with excessive speed, rapidity. They don't think things through. They act on the spur of the moment. They rush into things without consideration. And throughout the book of Proverbs, it warns us several times. It warns us not to be hasty. Acting hastily makes poor choices. Chapter 19, verse 2. Trying to get rich quick leads to disaster. Chapter 28, verse 20. Being hasty with your words is foolish. Chapter 29, verse 20. It's not telling you to, to become a slow coach, because some of us are just more, you know, more quick processing than others. But it is telling us to approach life with careful consideration and planning. Now, the same idea is put forward at the end of the book, and that's the next proverb here. This is from a long description, that's been a, a picture, really, of the, the noble woman, or the woman of excellence. She takes... The pride of place at the end of the book of Proverbs. And we get this wonderful picture of this woman. And she embodies wisdom in her sphere of influence and her place of responsibility. She is a wife and a mother, and she manages her household with great skill. The home she creates is well-managed, well-resourced, and a place of joy, and a place of strength, and a place of generosity for others. And as a result, it says in chapter 31, verse 25, she is clothed with strength and dignity, and she can laugh at the days to come. She can laugh at the days to come. Now this means that wise planning leads to great confidence for the future. Would you like to be able to laugh at the days to come? Then we need to learn to make wise plans. So how do we do that? Point one, wise and foolish planning. Wise and foolish planning. Look at these first two proverbs here. And notice, 
What differentiates wise from foolish planning? Here are those first two. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. Wise planning, according to these Proverbs, seeks advice from wise people. The key difference highlighted here is that plans based on a great deal of advice will succeed and bring victory. Wise people seek advice, they pursue it, but fools don't. Fools are convinced that they know best. According to Proverbs, they're wise in their own eyes, so why do they need to listen to anyone else? Now, why does having many advisors help us plan? Because if we only listen to one or two people, we're more likely just to talk to people who already agree with us, aren't we? We're inclined to pick people who share our point of view. Let me ask you a question. Be honest with yourself. Do you ever ask someone for advice, but really you're just looking for confirmation of what you've already decided? We do it, you know. Now, a range of advisors many advisors will bring in wisdom from different perspectives. They will come up with points of view, they will see things that we would never have seen. More likely, they're gonna challenge our plans and our preconceived ideas. I reached out to a wise friend for advice this week. I uh, wrote to him and asked if I could see him. And he wrote back and in his email, he said something like this, you can be assured of my prayers and honest counsel. And when I read the phrase, honest counsel, I actually thought, ooh, what's he going to say to me? I don't know if I want honest counsel. I want someone to tell me I'm great. No, we need honest counsel. And I saw him, and he was uh, both encouraging and honest. I'm always amazed in life and in church when people make huge life decisions without actually talking to a range of people. Why would we do that? Why would we think that was wise? Maybe because we don't want to hear objections. Proverbs says, seek advice actively. Have the humility to submit your plans to other points of view. Get all the advice you can. But there is an important caveat here, an important thing we need to, to notice. It's that you have to choose your advisors well. You have to choose your advisors. Look at the next verse. Chapter 12, verse 5. The plans of the righteous are just, but the advice of the wicked is deceitful. Notice the contrast again. The plans of the righteous are just on the first line, but secondly, the advice of the wicked is deceitful. What is this getting at? You may have many intelligent advisors, many people who make very uh, convincing-sounding statements. They may seem to be credible, but some of them are not to be trusted. Some advice sounds plausible, but it is not to be trusted because the, the motives of the people giving it are wicked, according to this. They're giving advice, but it will lead you to a bad choice. Now, the alarming thing about such advice is that it is deceitful. In other words, it, it, you could easily be taken in by it. Huh. You won't notice that it's bad until much later. Now the Bible is full of examples of this. People who seek 
lots of advice, and then they choose the wrong course. Solomon's son, King Solomon, who wrote most of these Proverbs, his own son, Rehoboam, was made king in 1 Kings chapter 12. It's an interesting chapter. Rehoboam, having been made king, does a good thing. He seeks advice. He asks and he consults. He consults, first of all, with the elders of the people. And these elders would be normally the older uh, men in the community, usually in their 60s, 70s, people who had seen a lot of life, who had lived through the good times and the bad times. And he, he asked these elders, uh, how should I rule? And this is what they told the new king. If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. See, king, be humble. Serve the people and that you'll win their hearts. But Rehoboam, it says, rejected the advice that the elders gave him and he consulted the young men, his mates, who'd grown up with him and were serving him. And he asked them, what's your advice? How should we answer these people? Because the people were saying, Look, lighten the yoke your father put on us. The tax burden was too heavy. Lighten it, please. And the young men said, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us. Make our yoke lighter. Now you tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. He's saying, I'm a really big guy. <laughs> my father laid on you a heavy yoke. I'm going to make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. What kind of advice was that? And that is what Rehoboam chose, the advice of his peers. It flattered his ego. It made him feel like the strong man, the big guy. And as a result, he blew it. He lost the support of the people. Now, we must learn to discriminate between different kinds of advice. We must learn to discern between the bad, the good, and the best. How can we do this? Life's so complicated. There's a devotional book many of us have been using over the summer uh, called The Way of Wisdom, and it's by Tim and Kathy Keller. They suggest seven steps. I think this is so helpful. I'm going to share it here. Seven steps. First of all, we seek much advice from other people. We thought about that. Secondly, we look at the Bible. We, we choose the best course in light of Scripture. What does the Bible have to say to this decision? Thirdly, we seek the opinion of authorities, those who have some kind of authority in, in family, so your, your parents, grandparents, those who have authority in church, your leaders, pastors, those who have authority in society, seek their opinion. Fourthly, check your conscience. Check your conscience. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He's sharpening your conscience. Check your conscience. What does it say about this decision? Fifthly, examine your motives. Why do I want to do this? Six, ask what is the best use of your gifts for God's kingdom. And seventh, assess the decision's impact on other people. I'll run through those seven quickly again. Seek a lot of advice from other people. Choose the best course in light of scripture. Seek the opinion of authorities. Check your conscience. Examine your motives. Ask what's the best use of your gifts for God's kingdom and assess the impact of the decision on other people. Now, having done all that, you make the choice, you make the plan. Now, notice something a bit scandalous here. I don't know if anyone's going to be outraged by this. The advice doesn't say, pray about it. <laughs> 
Is that a bit uh, outrageous? Well, every decision, every decision, everything in life must be covered in prayer and submitted to God. But what we notice in Proverbs is that you have to make the plan. God entrusts that to you. God won't do it for you. So often we wish that God would just make it clear. Give me a sign, Lord. You know, we try and read something. What's that pattern in my cornflakes in the morning? Is it helping me make this decision? I had this kind of feeling in the night. Was it from God? Or was it that cheese they ate before I went to bed? I had a strange dream. I saw someone who looked familiar and then I realized I didn't know them. I wonder if it meant anything. We're trying to fill in all these gaps. But actually Proverbs says, no, no, we have to grow up. A mature, godly life is a person who takes all these things into account, prays, and then makes a plan. Because God wants us to grow into mature adults who make wise plans and don't need to be led by the hand all the time. What we need in life, I'm going to be really controversial for a moment here, okay? I'm going to make this statement. At the end of the service, I'm going to run away. What we need in life is not more direct words from God on some kind of hotline. We already have the Bible. Because those direct words from God are kind of a cop-out to remove our responsibilities to make wise plans. We need more holy common sense. I'm always saying to my family, common sense is not that common. We need more holy common sense. As the next verse shows, have a look at this. Chapter 24, verse 27. This may seem really prosaic and kind of ordinary, but it's quite interesting. Put your outdoor work in order... And get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Huh? What? What's this about? There's no contrast here. Put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Now, in a rural culture, in a rural economy, your income, your earnings, were determined by the productivity of your fields, what's outdoors. So this verse is saying... Work out how much you've got coming in, your income, before you know how big a house to build. See that? Now, this is very practical. What does it mean? Plan carefully. Plan carefully. It is the height of folly to set your heart on a certain lifestyle and try to get it when you simply can't afford it. And as we grow up in life and become mature, we have to realize this. You will not have the ability to to sustain yourself and support that lifestyle, so don't buy it. Now this kind of thing, you know, buying what you can't afford, trying to buy the dream on credit, is rampant in our culture. And it's fueled, of course, by clever and persuasive and seductive marketing that, that sells you a dream. Oh, I wouldn't I love to live in a house like that. You find yourself scanning right move in the small hours of the morning. Oh, if only I could live in that detached mansion in Didsbury. Can we get a mortgage for £1.5 million? Are you joking? We're in a flat. But you know what? We can get easily available credit. We can get into debt. Many people get themselves into horrendous debt on credit cards and other things, and their lives become so pressured unhappy because they built the house before they worked out how much income was coming in from the fields got to cut your cloth be wise 
How do we make wise plans? First, seek much advice. Second, be discerning about the advisors. And third, plan carefully. Plan carefully. Now, there's actually something even more sort of fundamental and deeper than the kind of plans we make, and that's the second point on the right-hand side of the sheet. It's the kind of people we are. Let me say it again. This is more important than the kind of plans we make. It's the kind of people we are. You see, if the most important thing about our plans was careful planning, that would be one thing. But Proverbs doesn't give us much guidance on how to make plans. God guides us more in terms of who we are. Notice in chapter 6, verse 18, a heart that devises wicked schemes and feet that are quick to rush into evil. Now, this is in a list of things in Proverbs 6 that God really detests. God hates these things. There's a whole list of them. And in the middle of this list, it's a heart that devises wicked schemes. Now, let me just point out something very obvious. What is it that devises the schemes? It's the heart. Not the, not the mind as such. Now, the heart in the Bible is the center of the person. It's the core identity. It's, it's who you are. We just sang a marvelous song that was reteaching us who we are. Now, the, the heart, that's about the heart. So what they're saying is it's more important to pay attention to the kind of person you are becoming over time than to worry about getting the plan exactly right. We've got to be more worried about the kind of character we have, the kind of person we are, than this precise decision we're taking. We need to go deeper. Look at the next verse, chapter 16, verse 2. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Motives are weighed by the Lord. Our ways, our choices, our lifestyle can seem pretty good to us. According to this, we can look at the way we're living and even think it's pure. But actually, God is looking on the heart and he is weighing motives. He's weighing motives. Even our finest moments are tainted by pride and self-interest, aren't they? A number of years ago, I had the privilege of sitting in a class, really sitting at the feet of one of the great preachers of the 20th century, an American scholar called Haddon Robinson, Dr. Robinson. He was nearly 80 years old, wonderful old guy. And Dr. Robinson one time in the lecture stood there and he kind of looked, get that middle distance stare. He used to say profound things. And he said, you know, sometimes I wonder if I've done a single thing in my life with a completely pure motive. Sometimes I wonder if I've done a single thing in my life with a completely pure motive. We need to pay attention to our own hearts, to our motives. Why are we drawn to choose this thing? Why does this decision, this life action appeal to us? Why does one course draw me more than another? And we need to Seek godly advice in order to see ourselves because we're all blind to ourselves. And we need to do this heart work if we're going to become people of integrity. Look at the next two Proverbs. Chapter 11, verse 3. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Wow! I thought we needed God to guide us. And we do. But here it says that it's our integrity that's going to guide us. What is integrity? 
Integrity means wholeness. It means that you're the same on the inside, you're the same person on the inside that you are on the outside. Of course, we all put on a good face, and we look our best, and we appear to be very virtuous and very godly and good on the outside. But on the inside, we can be quite different. In fact, we can be very different once the front door closes and those guests have gone and we start barking and yelling at the children. We can be very different late at night when no one sees what we're doing. But if they saw us, we would be horrified. Now, integrity is matching up the outside you with the inside you so that they're actually the same. That's integrity. There's no falseness. There's no pretending to be someone you're not. The contrast here, the unfaithful person is duplicitous. They're pretending all the time. They're faking. And it destroys them. Huh. Now that means there's a long path for us in the Christian life. A long road ahead. And a lot of hard work because it takes time to develop integrity and godly character. But these are qualities that God will use to guide you. See, it's more important who you are than what you plan. The more we know God, really know him and love him, the more we understand the Bible and get into the depths of it, the more we start to see our own hearts and understand them and other people's, the more we learn from life, the more we'll become people of integrity who have the wisdom to make good choices. That's what we need. Not quick fix guidance. Lord, just tell me what to do. No, no. God asks you to become a person of integrity. That will guide you along with wise counsel. So firstly, wise and foolish planning. What's the difference? Secondly, we've noted that the planner, not the plan, is very important, the most important thing. So how does God fit into all this? So far, a lot of what I've said could almost be conducted on the horizontal plane, but there is a vertical axis, of course. God is the, the, the background of Proverbs, the background of the whole Bible is God is the good, faithful creator who loves all he has made and is redeeming it and renewing all things. And we know, in a way that these guys didn't do, that God is doing all of that through Jesus Christ, his son, our saviour. How does God fit into our plans? Look at these next Proverbs. Chapter 16, verse 1. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. To humans belong the plans of the heart. Notice, the plans of the heart belong to you. They are your responsibility. God looks at you and says, what are you going to do with your plans? Because they're important to guide you. They matter. And the way that God works isn't to come in and kind of tell you what to do all the time. He asks you to seek wisdom. Next verse. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Huh. Even though our plans matter, even though we have to plan our course, it's actually the Lord who establishes our steps. Such a delicate balance here. Even though God is sovereign, even though our plans matter, he doesn't force us to act in a kind of coercive way. All we do, says here, is guided by his gentle hand. Our steps are established by him. Even some of the wrong steps. Is this a paradox? 
Look at the next verse. Chapter 20, verse 24. A person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand their own way? Now this verse says that our steps are actually directed, guided by God. And we don't fully understand even our own way. Let alone what God is doing. Yet the Bible insists that we are responsible agents who should make wise plans. And we're responsible for the choices that we make. We're not robots made of meat. Now modern people kind of can't handle this. We make it an either or. We say, well, either, uh, you know, God is in charge and all powerful or we've got free choice and we're responsible. You can't have it both ways. But the Bible does have it both ways. It says that human choice and responsibility is absolutely critical and we have freedom. But God is ultimately sovereign behind it all. I'm going to give you the key text on that. I'll read it out. I don't think we've handed out Bibles today. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is the apostle Peter preaching at Pentecost, the first Christian sermon. And he's talking about Jesus. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So God's set purpose and foreknowledge was that this was going to happen to Jesus, but the human beings were fully responsible for what they did. They nailed him to the cross. God's, in God's purposes, our actions are significant, purposeful, and we're responsible for them. But they can't overrule what he wants. Next verse, and we'll finish on this one. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. We need plans. We've thought about that. We need to make them. We need wise plans. We need to, to be people of integrity and character. But it says here, no matter how many plans we've made, in the end, the Lord's purpose prevails. And I want to just uh, finish on, on this note. This is the greatest comfort in life and death. Why? We know from Scripture that God is all-powerful, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator and sustainer of all things. We know from Scripture that God is all-knowing. He knows the beginning from the end. Nothing escapes his attention. We know from Scripture that God is infinitely wise. He never makes a wrong choice. And we know from Scripture that God is infinitely loving. He sent Jesus to die for us. Jesus came willingly for our sake. That is the extent of God's love. So God is perfectly wise, and he's perfectly wise in how he loves you, Christian friend, and in what he brings into your life. And this is where this starts to connect with us. No matter what's happened to you, no matter what other people have tried to do to you, no matter what mistakes you've made and continue to make, and no matter your limitations, and you're more aware of them than anyone else, God's purposes for you will stand. And his love cannot be shaken. It is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Not those voices that were telling you that you were worthless since you were a child and you now have no self-esteem and self-regard, whatever. No, no. The Lord's voice is more powerful than theirs. He loves and accepts you. Not that bad decision that you make that you're still regretting, you can't let go and you can't forgive yourself for. No, no. The Lord's purpose prevails. He'll take care of it.
Not your uncertainty and fear about the future because you don't know what's going to happen next week or next year or in your life and you feel distraught by it. No, can you trust an infinitely wise, all-loving God with your future? The Lord's purpose will prevail. One of the great textbook examples of this, the poster child of this, is Jacob. Read about him in the book of Genesis. Jacob was a wily guy. He was a guy who tried to control and manage life. He was a manipulator. He tried to control everything. He's a really skillful, politically skilled guy. But as much as he twisted and turned and tried to control things, things seemed to go wrong. And basically, God, although he lied and deceived and caused chaos in his life, he could not stop God's purpose, which was ultimately to set him straight and make him a man who followed after God. And he became an ancestor of Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. God's purposes could not be thwarted. So do you believe, friends, that God is all wise and has a good plan for your life? The Lord's purpose will prevail. I think this verse could be the greatest cure for non-clinical anxiety. I say non-clinical. Clinical anxiety needs a whole load of things looked at, including medication. But non-clinical anxiety, which many of us struggle with, I wonder if this verse could help us. Because we will learn from it that the Lord's purpose prevails. I'm going to give you an example of a great warrior. She was called Catherine von Bora. Uh, she was the wife of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. Now, the story of how they got married is quite a funny one. Uh, Luther was a monk. He uh, had great insights that caused him to leave the Roman Catholic Church. And he was one of the founders of the Protestant movement. And one of Luther's uh, tasks that he, he enjoyed doing was, was, was liberating nuns and helping nuns to leave the nunnery and, and settle down and lead productive lives and get married and have kids. So one time he had a bunch of nuns who'd all become Protestant Christians and he was trying to find guys to marry them off to and he managed to marry all of them off except one who was this one left called Catherine. So he thought, well, there's nothing else for it. He married her. <laughs> By the way, those of you who are angsting about whether you should marry someone or not, that's worth reflecting on, isn't it? There's some marriage advice. But, but Luther's life was full of danger. He was constantly in danger, uh, uh, death threats, and also very ill a lot and, and struggled himself with great stress. And so he used to write to her, whenever he was away from home, uh, letters to try and reassure her. But he also used to put, pull fun, poke fun at, at uh, Katie, as he called her, uh, because she worried so much. I'm going to read you a letter from February the 10th, 1546. Most precious spouse... Thank you most heartily for your great anxiety, which keeps you from sleeping. For while you have been worrying about us, we were almost consumed by a fire which broke out near the door to my room in the place we were staying. And yesterday, doubtless as a consequence of your anxiety, a stone almost fell on our heads and might have crushed us like mice in a mousetrap. For several days, little pieces of plaster were drifting down from overhead in our private quarters. And when we summoned help and the ceiling was examined, a stone fell down, which was as long as a large pillow and more than a hand's breadth wide. Think of what might have happened as a result of your blessed worrying if the dear angels had not intervened. I fear that if you do not stop worrying, 
the earth will swallow us up and all the elements will fall upon us. Is this the way in which you learn the catechism and understand faith? I beg you to pray and leave the worrying to God. You are not commanded to worry about me or yourself. It is written, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. And similarly, in many other places. There's a good way to write to your spouse. Look, uh, we've got to make wise plans. And we need to. We've got to choose good, good advisors. We need to be concerned about the development of our own characters. To have integrity that guides us. But above all, beyond all, in front of all, and ultimately guiding it is the Lord God. The Lord's purpose prevails. Amen? So anxious friends, will you chew on that? Take that text, uh, chew on it, meditate on it until it lights up and becomes part of who you are. God has a good plan for you, Christian friend, and no one can thwart it, even you. Let's pray.